And now, another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. It looks like your luggage is over 50 pounds. Is there anything you can take out? Oh, yeah. Let me just toss all these $20 bills. Great. Let me grab you a trash can. Stop. Instead of throwing money away, move some clothes into a carry-on. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. everyone it's jay scott this is the hook rocks the ultimate rock community podcast hope everyone's having a great day today's guest hails from toronto canada and it's, it's someone i've been looking forward to talking to for a while he currently is a music correspondent blogger radio host for the eric alper show on sirius xm and also has his own public relations company, music public relations company, that Eric Alper. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for the intro. I'm doing well. Thanks for coming on. Uh, like I said, thank you very much for doing it. Uh, I appreciate it as all my guests come on. Um, look forward to having the conversation with you. But we always start the same way with every guest. That is the essence of the show. We always ask the same first question the first time someone appears on the hook rocks. And that is, just like every rock song has a hook, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a performance, or a band, that hooked them on rock and roll. What hooked you? Um, My moment was um, as clear as it was yesterday. I was eight years old sitting in a movie theater by myself. My parents were in the movie theater right beside me. We were up at the cottage, a little bit up north of Toronto, where back in the 70s, you could actually do something like that and take your kids to the movie theater and then go meet them an hour and a half later. Um, I saw the movie American Hot Wax, and it was a kind of docudrama based on the life and times and the ups and downs of Alan Freed one of the very first DJs in America to play rock and roll. He was uh, a DJ from the Cleveland area, and he actually put together the very first rock and roll show uh, back in the mid-1950s. And um, it was it stayed pretty true to his story, although I had no idea at the time. Um, but watching um, actors portray Danny, Danny and the Juniors do their version of Rock and Roll is here to stay, but also have watching for the first time um, Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry um, playing themselves and performing on stage as if it was 1950 um, shocked me to my very core, excited me to no end, and thought that is what I wanted to do with my life. And since then, I've heard from a lot of musicians who are a little bit older than I am, 
saying that watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan was their moment or going to Woodstock was their moment. So for me, um, the tipping point where I knew I had to do something in music without any musical talent whatsoever was, uh, was watching the movie American Hot Wax back in 1978. That's a great story. Uh, where did it go from there? I mean, you saw the movie, uh, you know, it inspired you to kind of create this journey for yourself. What was the first? Yeah, my great, yeah, my, my grandfather has a bar in Toronto called Grossman's Tavern, and the bar is still standing. My grandfather passed away about 20 years ago, and he sold the bar in the mid-1970s. And it was one of um, the first bars in Canada to not only have music, live music, but it was one of the first places to actually have an alcohol license. The city of Toronto, as cool and hip as it is now, back in 1943, uh, when the bar first opened, thought that mixing alcohol and blues music would be um, the catalyst to bring everybody to hell. Um, and pretty much they, they were almost right. Um, and uh, so I, I grew up with having music played a lot um, at the cottage or in the house. For me, music was a sense of community. It was a sense of where my family worked. It was a place where a lot of their friends were musicians. Um, and so I, I started listening to the radio from the time that I saw American Hot Wax and bought the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and all of that stuff. Um, I started listening to the radio a little bit better. And by that, I mean, like, I was listening for things um, like verses and forces and what the DJs were saying and the ads and the jingles. I started becoming a little bit of an active participant in my radio listening, even even back then. But I had no musical talent whatsoever, and I still don't. You stick me in a room full of instruments, I will break everything uh, by accident. If you stick me in the studio, I would not have the first kind of knowledge on what anything does. And that's, that's the beautiful thing that I that I see about music is it's all a magic to me. It's all a mystery to me. I have no idea how it's created. Um, so that was what I thought of when I was a kid was I had no idea how any of this is made until I started hitting my teenage years and I got a description of billboard magazine. I read about the stories of the people behind the records reading about producers, reading about the A&R guys, reading about the record labels and the mastering people and memorizing the charts for only me to know. And uh, after university, I worked at the uh, at the campus radio newspaper and at the radio station there. Um, after university, I started a record label and then booked the agency and then a PR company. And that was back in 1994 and I've been doing this ever since. So really, it was, I was lucky because I found my spark really early on and I knew what I wanted to do. I wasn't going to be the third baseman for the Kansas City Royals. So other than that, I had to fall back on a more realistic proposition, which is I think I'll work in the music industry. You know, we have kind of very similar stories in that I don't play any instruments as well. I may be able to play first Noel on the piano, but that's probably the extent of it. But I was... Oh, you're a better man than I am. (laughs) I was introduced 
to, to music by my grandfather. My grandfather used to play piano in the speakeasies in Chicago for the mobsters and and you know everyone that would, would in, during the days of prohibition. And he had this oh, piano. Wow. He had this piano in his house. And when I would stay overnight there, I would be awoken by the sound of the piano. And he hit the keys really hard. I mean, he was a booming piano player. So I would get up, you know, four or five years old, and I'd have breakfast. My grandma would be making me whatever, and I would just listen to this piano. And I really didn't know what it meant at the time. I just knew that I liked it, and I knew that I liked the sound. Yeah. Well, fast forward a couple yeah. years later, my older brother brings home Journey Escape and puts the needle down on the on the vinyl, and the first song is Don't Stop Believing" with the piano intro. Of course, I completely connected <laughs> with my grandfather. Like, oh, I, that's the piano. My grand, you know, grandpa plays the yeah. piano. And then hearing the vocal, yeah, this is your own music, right? And then hearing Neil Sean come in with the guitar and obviously Steve Perry's vocals and the structure of the song, it just connected with me. And then I was off. My journey was was set, you know. And then after that, you know, came Kiss and Van Halen and all all the stuff. And then it just kept going forward. Yeah, and I get the feeling that you you still listen to that kind of music too. I do. I do still listen to classic rock. I do love a lot of new rock. I do also like uh, a lot of old school country. Um, I do like uh, like the singer songwriter stuff, like you know the Butch Walkers, the Pete Yorns, artists yeah. like that. I do really dig that stuff. I do have a lot of friends that are into the punk, you know, and I do appreciate it. You know, like Social Distortion and and of course the Ramones and stuff, but. Yeah, I, I, I really have a wide palette when it comes to music. I still appreciate the jazz stuff that my uncle introduced me to as well. Um, but my core is always rock and roll. And that's kind of, you know, where, where, you know, the lane I kind of stay in. But I do have, I do get off the highway once in a while and, 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 and go down a few different streets. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of studies that have come out in the last couple of years that have, um, kind of acknowledged by the fact, you know, that most people, by the time they reach 33 years of age, they stop listening to new music. Um, they get married, they have kids, um, they have a mortgage to pay, they drive to work, and maybe it takes them an hour, maybe they're just looking for new traffic, whether sports, and they're not really up, and they don't really follow um, the new music and new musical trends. Um but one of the things that the studies consistently go back to is that the music that you, you first listen to as a late kid, early teenager, and through your formidable years as a teenager is the music that kind of shapes you. And um, I think we're always trying to go back to that in some psychological way. The music that I first listened to were the cross between absolute gorgeous, straight-ahead pop music like Donnie and Marie Osmond who had the variety show every week or Sha Na Na, but like the early stuff of rock and roll like Buddy Holly and Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and Fat Domino and stuff that, just by coincidence, were, were the beginnings of rock and roll, but through no rhyme or reason. I kind of started at the beginning, but then one foot there and one foot in the pop world of Blondie and the Bee Gees and whatever pop music was, was playing. I mean, back then, it sounds it sounds a little bit similar to what we're seeing now with the Billboard Hot 100. AM radio would basically play whatever was a hit. 
didn't matter if it was the Eagles or the Archie Sugar Sugar or Michael Jackson. They would be playing it as long as it was a hit. And now, to this day, I still am trying to always get back to the garden. I'm trying to get back to those moments that I first felt the first time I saw somebody like Duran Duran in concert and hearing nothing but 19,000 screams. So when I go see somebody like Sean Mendez with my 16-year-old daughter, I've seen it before, so I'm not so surprised. Um, it's, it's nothing new to me, and um, it's no less exciting and no less worthy of it. But it's interesting that a lot of the stuff that that I think lifers or people who make um, make their career in music are, you know, are still trying to keep up on what's happening today, but never lose sight of the music that first got us as a fan in the first place. Absolutely. You know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine going to a concert earlier this year. We were on our way to see Blackberry Smoke. And we were having the same conversation in regards to, you know, why people our age almost refuse to listen to new rock music. And he brought up a great point. He's like, your music's like your friends, right? It's like your group of friends. When you're young, you have a lot of friends. And you have different circles of friends that you go and you hang out with and you do things with. And as you get older, your circle becomes smaller. You, you know, you don't hang out with as many people. And it's kind of like music, right, for a lot of people, that they kind of get comfortable with what they like, and they kind of said, all right, this is where it's at for me, this is what I enjoy, and this is what I'm going to keep listening to. And, you know, if you put new friends or new stuff in front of them, they'll be nice, you know, and cordial, but they'll always think what their current friends are are their best friends. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I completely agree with that. You know, it, it, it's, and it, it's kind of funny, you know, that, that you and I were talking about this. And meanwhile, you know, somebody who I happen to love, like somebody like a Billie Eilish, gets slammed on social media for not knowing who Van Halen is. And I get it. Like, you, all these people that are angry, they're just projecting their own their own lives on somebody that you have no comprehension what anybody else might be going through, you know, until, and unless you are in fact Billy Eilish, you have no idea about her upbringing and can't say, well, I knew who the Rolling Stones were by the 12. Well, that's, that's nice. Like good for you. But you know, for her to know who a Van Halen is 40 years ago, same as you and I growing up in the seventies, listening and knowing about the artists from the 1930s. And so it's just one of those situations where you kind of move with your crowd and the history and the historical background of what you happen to love is completely irrelevant from person to person to person. You know, my, my friends are still, I'm not going to say that they're stuck, but they're still kind of stuck in loving classic rock. The music of Rush and Genesis and Prague and all of that stuff. And you couldn't, even if I held a gun to their head, they wouldn't be able to tell me any of the Billboard top albums from the last couple of years. They have no interest. And that's okay. Um, I, I always used to say, you know, 
I never, I never want to tell people how to consume music. I just want them to consume it. And so it didn't matter to me what kind of music somebody liked or didn't like. I didn't care if they still listen to vinyl or cassettes or CDs or eight tracks or their own mixtapes on music streaming services. As long as they're continuing to love music, um, that's completely and you know completely great in my book. You know, the, the unpopular opinion about the whole Van Halen thing is the only ones to really blame for not connecting with a newer generation is the band itself. They made some great music for decades, but they really haven't done much over the past 20 years. You don't hear their you don't yeah, hear but, their but, that, but that's okay. Yeah. Right, but that's okay. Like, like, even if you were to look at the Google searches of the last decade, you'll see that the Beatles are dropping substantially every single year as as big as the box sets are as many times as they want to repackage stuff as many songs as people want to name drop Mick Jagger the Rolling Stones the Beatles the Who Zeppelin the Birds Jimi Hendrix Janice Jim Morrison they're all dropping in Google searches now that could be partly because People don't need to search for things anymore. They can just type it into Spotify or Pandora or whatever their music streaming service that they are on if they're a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old or 13 or 8-year-old and just go. And maybe they're just typing and going right to Wikipedia. They're not searching for things or that they're constantly on YouTube so they need to search it. But I don't think that that's the answer. I think it's because the context of everything doesn't matter anymore. You can now be a pop artist and a rock artist and have the spirit of rock and roll like a Billie Eilish and be Billie Eilish and not be interested whatsoever what happened before you were born. That's a real interesting thought process to me. Look, do you remember when the Black Crows broke in like the, you know, the early 1990s? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, in the in the era of big hair bands and pop music like Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys, and then think here was a band. If you loved the Stones, here was a band for you. If you loved the blues and rock and Almond Brothers, here was Chris and Rich Robinson coming for your soul, and they exploded. People who loved the 60s and 70s, loved that band. Because finally, here was a band that was their age or a little bit older or somebody that they could actually see that was living rather than finding their hopes that led up and would ever reunite with another drummer. Um, when we were growing up, it was almost like you had to have a, that badge of honor and that background and not being authentic meant you had a great record collection to steal from and turn it into something new. The pop artists of today, whether you're Ariana Grande or Shawn Mendes or um, The Weeknd, they were all born well after Michael Jackson's Thriller came out. And they probably only go back two or three albums previous to the year that they're popular in. So Justin Bieber, I don't really expect to know a lot about the Beatles. I don't really care for him too. He doesn't need it because the demands of the audience are with them. They're not interested in what happened 30 or 40 years ago either. So I see your point about, hey, look, 
Van Halen isn't Def Leppard. You know, they're not Motley Crue or Joan Jett, um, who all just announced that they're going on tour together. You know, they don't have a 40 year history, a career, um, uh, of still continuing to go out every year, year after year after year. Um, but I think to this current generation of, of the popular artists that are on the charts, those artists are completely irrelevant to them. I agree. I also think that the fact that a band like Van Halen, who doesn't have their music in movies or in commercials, lacks or doesn't connect with a generation because a lot of times that's how people hear music. Now they hear the song in a commercial or they hear a song in a movie. Oh, what's that? You know, what was that song? And then it kind of re you know, reintroduces a generation to that music, you know, whether they're going to garner a lot of fans or, you know, they're going to be as popular as ever, probably not. But I do think it matters when there's no presence, right? You have to have some presence in order to be somewhat relevant. And I just think that, you know, when you look at Van Halen, they own probably two decades uh, uh, of music, and now they've just completely been doing nothing. You know, they've having maybe one, one or two tours in the last 20 years. They've released one album in the last 20 years. So, you know, when I saw yeah. this backlash against Billy Ellish, well, it was like, well, you know, I mean, there's been 20 years where they really haven't done anything. So what do you expect? You know, so, I mean, you know. yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and that's okay too. Right. You know, you go through the last 70 years worth of popular music. Uh, I think most people will be hard pressed to name more than three artists that came from the 1940s, other than maybe Frank Sinatra. Uh, or Cad Calloway, or, or you know, Louis Armstrong. Yeah, you know, in the 50s, eh, maybe people will name five or six or seven. Um, in the 80s, you know, Madonna, Bruce Springsteen, Michael Jackson, Phil Collins, you know, those were the four biggest ones of the decade. Um, so, you know, maybe Van Halen got their due for seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve years, and they will be a footnote, like 99.999% of the artists out there. Look, I love Van Halen. I got nothing against them whatsoever. Um, but I think it's just a bunch of uh, old people <laughs> uh, still trying to figure out how to work social media in a world where they would never sit there and insult the 17-year-old to their face. Correct. I agree. Moving on, you know, we do, like I said, we're doing a, sh a bunch of shows on, on, on topics related to rock music and how it's becoming irrelevant, meaning new music, where a band like a Joyous Wolf or a Dirty Honey, a band that's been around for 10 years like Rival Sons has taken a while to, for people to kind of finally latch on to. Where do you see the disconnect with rock music versus 20, 30 years ago, where they're not connecting with the younger generation like they once were? Um, I wish I had the correct answer for this. Um, but what I usually like to say is that I don't know. Um, there are so many factors at play within the music industry to control what we listen to when we want to hear it. Um, it really starts off with 
I think at the club level where you have a generation of music lovers that are eight to 17 year olds who aren't interested. They're, they're smoking less, they're drinking less and they're going out less. Um, thanks to video games, Netflix, texting, video, all that stuff required, um, doesn't really require them to have friends and leave the house or have a social life because they actually think that they are social. So when you have a, a, a generation that may grow up without having to be or want to go into a, a club and see live music, you're going to start to see a lack of rock and roll bands that are willing to travel city by city, state by state, country by country in order to to make it big and to attract the, the attention of a record label to sign them. Um, it's why you see a lot more dance clubs these days than maybe venues that have live music on a regular basis. And if there's a lack of rock music that the record labels are signing, then that means that there's a lack of rock music that's really kind of getting played on the radio, period. You end up with far more radio formats of pop music and urban music or AC music than you do on the rock side. Even though that there's a huge amount of crossover there, what you end up is is rock charts say, you know, right now with artists like Green Day and the Black Keys and Ozzy Osbourne and Weezer and Ed Sheeran and Twenty One Pilots and a lot of kind of veteran bands or bands that have been around for a number of years, except for maybe Twenty One Pilots. The rest of it are all kind of mainstays and staples. So you end up with maybe one of every five or six or seven radio stations in a major market playing rock music. And that's not to talk about the amazing work that the campus radio or university or campus stations do, which kind of plays a lot of rock music and a lot of underground stuff along with world music and jazz and blues and R&B. So if you don't hear rock music on the radio, well, then you can't go and buy it. And it goes back to the record label situation, thrown back to them. is like, if they can't make any money from it, then why are they willing to invest millions of dollars in finding the next Nirvana or the next Van Halen? Um, they need to save their jobs. They need to keep their jobs. And I don't begrudge them whatsoever for leaning towards maybe not necessarily the easy way, because it's never easy to try to break a pop artist worldwide. But maybe they're just taking the, the road less traveled and uh, and the path more kind of in front of them and working with artists that have a high amount of streams on Spotify. And it's not rock bands that are doing that. It's urban music, it's rap, it's hip-hop, and it's Latin music. And so people tend to gravitate to want to sign that because they think, well, if this artist can get 800 million streams on their own, think about what we are able to get with a universal music behind them with the world biggest record label on their team, maybe bring it up 3 billion, 2 billion, 1 billion. So you end up in those kind of scenarios and those kind of circles going around in your head going, well, is there a lack of rock music being played and heard and seen and streamed because that's what we're fed? Or are we actually feeding it back? And because we're a little bit lazy as audiences, we're not looking hard enough to find the next Nirvana or the next Motley Crue or the next ZZ Top, or the next Green Day. I find, and I've touched on this before in previous episodes, that the infrastructure for rock music just isn't there. 
you know, you have a lot of platforms with social media, whether it's YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, where bands can connect with an audience. But if fans don't know about them, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if they have good music or not. If they only have 200 followers or, or you know, uh, X number of listens on YouTube or watches, whatever they call it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter yeah. if no one's listening. And I just feel like for rock music, like you look at country, I often compare rock music to country on, on a lot of my episodes. Sure. When yeah. you look at country music, you know, there's three to four country radio stations in every market, at least, at least. And yeah. they all still play new country music. Now, you can say it's country pop or whatever. It's still played on country radio. They also have the artist from the past collaborate with newer artists to bring their audience to the newer artist. They have their own channel, the country music channel, right? Um, and there's just nothing like that for rock. Rock relied a lot on radio and MTV when it was in its heyday. Yeah. And now both of those things are gone for new rock music. The classic rock, you know, can still play it on the radio. But for new rock music, whether it's a new band you know, like the bands that I've mentioned or new artists, or, or I'm sorry, existing artists, whether it's a new Robert Plant album, whether it's a new LA Guns album, whatever it is, there's no place for people to hear it unless they go look for it. Yeah. You know, right now um, there, there's, there's two kind of uh, uh, active rock stations that are in Toronto, uh, in the 88 and the edge, the edge, is um, used to be when I was growing up in the eighties, the leader in breaking artists. They broke the cult. They broke Depeche Mode. They broke Sisters of Mercy, The Cure. Um, every UK new wave artist that broke, I will almost guarantee you that the Edge in Toronto was either first, second, or third in the kind of leading quietly that revolution along with K Rock in LA. Indie 88 right now is playing everything from Broken Social Scene to City and Color to Arcade Fire to The Lumineers, Tegan and Sarah, and Green Day. So they'll play some stuff, a little bit more indie stuff than The Edge will. But The Edge has to play what they play because they're kind of following what the other Edge-type stations are doing because it works. You talk about radio consolidation of a company like Clear Channel owning hundreds, if not thousands, of stations across North America. Or up here in Canada, we have Rogers, Shaw, Bell, and Stingray, the four major radio conglomerates, owning almost 85 to 90% of the radio stations. So what works in L.A. on a rock station is exactly what they think will work in Cincinnati on that same kind of rock station, or New York, or... Kansas or um, all sorts of different cities across America because they like to think that we're all really the same kind of demographic, 18 to 34 male. What's interesting but that you brought up country music is like I think country music and rock music is kind of going through a similar fashion right now where there are so little women on country music radio. It's something like 8 to 10% at any given time would you see on the Billboard Hot 100 uh, Country Radio chart um, a song performed by a woman? Um, when you end up with that, you start to put the blame on people who are kind of kicking other people up the ladder. So is it radio's fault that they don't play women, 
or is it that they have actual research that says that people will actually shut off or turn the channel when a woman country song comes along? If you start to have a radio station and you start to try to build the next wave of rock musicians, do you end up with zero people listening because they, the people at radio, think that we will not listen to new music, music that we've never heard of before by bands that we've never heard of. Chances are there's some truth to that. We all want that familiarity of the songs we know, by the bands we know, especially when we're sitting in our cars and we don't like to be shocked so much anymore, but we also don't like to listen to something and feel uncomfortable by a new song or by a new artist that we don't know. The studies are there. So I, I think part of it is like, hey, you know, screw you, Rolling Stones. You have to put another pop artist on there. But then Rolling Stone has much better data than I could ever think of by saying, yeah, well, when we put Green Day on the cover, our, our newsstand sales go down 35%. So to them, it's strictly a business decision. The media and radio will put whatever will sell on their format. To them, it's like cookies. It doesn't matter what it is. When we had an explosion of something like a Jimi Hendrix or a Van Halen or a Nirvana or just somebody that nobody asked to have, the Sex Pistols. Nobody asked for the Sex Pistols. Nobody asked for Nirvana. But when something is bubbling under and is so great and so good that they can't escape it, that's when you'll start to see the wave of movement to try to find a, um, uh, a community that loves this kind of music. But right now, it's probably why, you know, Rolling Stone, the arbitrator of really rock music for decades, um, you go to their site and it's, not, and it's really nothing but really popular artists like Beyonce and Jay-Z and Billy and Shawn Mendes and... Carly Rae Jepsen and that's perfectly fine and that's great for them but that's what people are looking for right now that's what drives their bank account that's what makes them get hit to their website certainly not another story about the Grateful Dead or Van Halen the only reason why the Van Halen story worked you know going back to Dan and Billy Eilish was because it had everything to do with Billy Eilish you know if Motley Crue decided that they would have a bust up on tour in 2020, it would make the news for four hours, but then everybody would kind of go off into their own thing again. So the media kind of feeds itself back on whatever they think that we want. Or are we giving them the answers to what we want and we just don't know it? You know, I don't know, because maybe, I, you know, I understand that I'm a unique music fan, right? Where I, you know, love the music that shaped me as a youth and the music that I've listened to as I've live my life and I also like the new music too I, I still go see new bands live and I still always show an interest in, in, in listening and stuff but for me and, and, and you, you are probably 100% right you know they're giving us what we want based on data based on numbers but when I listen to a classic rock station you know I was in Colorado a month ago and I got in the rental car and the classic rock station was on and I heard Back in Black at like 11, right. 11 in the morning. And my son right. and I went to Boulder, spent the day in Boulder, and we're driving back around 6, and I hear back oh, in black again. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. How old is your son? He's 14. 
Do you think that that radio station is playing back in black for you to hear it for the nine millionth time? Or do you think that somewhere in the back of their head, they need to play this for their 14 year old son or both? Well, considering he's, you know, the younger generation, they're probably playing it in the hopes that it, some 14 year old hears it and connects with it. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had him on the podcast a few episodes ago and cause he, he likes rock music and he, you know, he's a freshman in high school. And I asked him during the show, you know, what are your friends listening to? I know you listen to your music. And he said, most of my friends listen to rap. And I said, why do you think that is? And he said, basically, they don't want to be like their parents. They don't want to listen to the same type of music your yeah. parents listen to. Right. So they're listening to something yeah. different. And the other aspect of it, when I was growing up, you know, I had to do covert ops to get an Ozzy Osbourne album in my house or an Iron Maiden album. So there was some danger related to the music that I was listening to, and that fed into it. And it's the same thing now sure. with, with rap music, right? You know, you have that dangerous element with the – with the you know the the music, so the so the parents are telling the kids don't listen to that anymore, don't don't listen to that. And of course, as a kid, you're going to listen to it more. You're going to, you're going to crave it more. So I think yeah, you know, there's no and, and I've mentioned this before. But I love but I love that though. Yeah. I I, I kind of dig the fact that um you know I, I, my daughter's sixteen um for years and years and years she would only be listening to the pop radio station on Sirius. And I would be like, this is like crap. Like there's no music. There's no, first of all, I mean, and I'm going to be total, total ageism here and probably break the whole mold of like what people think of how open I am. But look, I grew up with like, there's no guitars. There's no real drums. There's not even a drum roll. Forget about a guitar solo. The verses are in the exact same tone as the next verse. The chorus, I get the feeling like the artist is going into the studio for six seconds, singing the chorus once, and then they're just looping it all over again. There's no change in the tone or the method or anything throughout the entire song. It's almost like it's a mood. So I can sit here and be like, oh my God, this is like nowhere near the quality that I listened to when my parents hated what I was listening to. But then almost overnight, her friends started playing each other songs and making playlists on Spotify, like the who and ACDC. And she was like, do you know about this band called queen? And I was like, do I know about queen? <laughs> like it was one of the happiest moments. Like, tell me about ACDC, tell you about AC, you know? And so that was wonderful. But that's just because I think eventually everybody hits those marks. Eventually, everybody gets to the Beatles. Everybody gets to the Stones. As long as you'll have angry, pissed off teenagers, they'll always have a place for Nirvana and Jimi Hendrix and the Who. Um, but I think it's, it's this generation, like your son and my daughter, um, who, hey, man, if they decide to get married, they'd have the greatest record collection in the world. But enough. Um, if, if, that generation that came before them completely skipped of the hatred that parents are supposed to have for their kids' music. When we had an iPod, there were people that were sharing each other's music, an iPod, and we all had the ability to like listen to our own stuff. It was almost like 
hey, we want to all go see Pink in concert as a father-daughter or mother-daughter thing. You're not supposed to do that. You know, as parents, you're supposed to not like what your kids are liking. But, you know, I think we're kind of back to that now a little bit. There's something nice about parents not always getting involved with what they should be able to call them, call their own, you know? Absolutely. You know, I, I exposed him to music at a very early age. And, you know, his first concert was when he was five. I took him to see Butch Walker. And, you know, we've been to probably about a dozen shows together over the years. But now what's really cool is he's gotten older and he knows how to search for music is he's showing me, hey, Dad, check this band out. Check, this, check these guys out. And I think that's really cool because he's connecting with the newer generations of rock music and he's exposing me, keeping my taste fresh and the, my interest in music, it's not getting stale because he's kind of driving that. I mean, I still find new music on my own too, but it's always cool when he gets in the car, he's like, Hey, can I play you something? And I go, sure. You know, and he connects his phone to my, my car or whatever. And he starts playing it. And I'm like, yeah, this is pretty good. And I'll start listening to it after I drop him off at school and we, we've had that connection. And it's really cool that to see a kid his, in his generation and then other kids like his friends starting to get into that as well as, as kids grow and they experience more, they develop more tastes, you know, and, and, and their palate becomes bigger. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a great moment, especially when you're a dad because we sometimes have those few moments in relation to moms <laughs> um, that that you get to share that um, with your son. And, um, you know, what will be really interesting to see is if they become lifelong fans of those classic rock bands and not because of the, the examples or the reasons that you and I have talked about for the last 45 minutes. But there was something about having to save up money going on public transportation or walking or going with your buddy or a group of friends or by yourself down to the local record store, being intimidated by the people who work there, finding an album based on a smidgen of something that you heard or looking at the album cover and saying, this is awesome going home, taking off the wrapper, putting it on, reading the lyrics, devouring the liner notes, not having a clue what this band was like and having an air of mystery to them other than what you were trying to find out about in a magazine that came out either once a month or once a week like Rolling Stone or overseas like Enemy that you were always two months behind getting in North America. And the investment that I was putting into music is far more than even my daughter's best-loved artist in her life. And that's not to say that music isn't important or less important or more important, but the investment of hitting a button and finding like-minded artists within seconds is something I'm going to find incredibly interesting in five or ten years from now. Because I think the reason why you and I and others listening continue to also listen to the music that we grew up on is because we listened to it a thousand times over and over again until we could probably afford to buy another album. Or we didn't have a lot of albums. 
you know? I didn't. I listened to the radio a lot. I went out a lot. But I wasn't one of these guys that had 10,000 albums like some people, you know? I liked what I liked. I think at the most I had maybe 100 albums or so. But um, when you have the ability to listen to 55 million songs with the hit of a button on Spotify, um, that's an investment that they're not willing to take. And I think that's why this generation of, of kids who are growing up with Uber and Lyft in their lives, so they may not necessarily pine to have a car. They have Airbnb, wherever they want to, so they're not certainly staying at hotels, or they may not be able to even afford an apartment, forget about a house. Um, the wants and needs of luxury items to a younger generation has completely changed. And I think when we can sit here 50 years or 55 years after the Beatles started to break and still listen to the music, I think that's going to be a real test for artists like Drake or Lil Wayne or Ariana Grande or Rihanna who are storming up the charts time and time again if their music will actually be loved the same way 30 or 40 years down the road. I, I feel that the physical connection, and I've touched on this before, has always been a factor in how rock music kind of seems behind the, you know, the curve, basically, and adapting to new ways of absorbing music. Because I always felt that rock music especially relied on that experience that you just touched on, buying the album at the record store, looking at the album cover. You know, you think about some of those iconic album covers that were in the 80s and in the 70s and even yeah. in the 90s, you know, so you saw you saw that, you know, on whether it was a CD or an album. And like you said, you read the liner notes. So it was it was like all day experience. And you absorb that album through like a week or two. Right. You listen to it over and over again. And I just don't think for a, for a genre of music that relied on a lot of the experience I know, I know young people want to have the experience. That's why festivals now are so, are so popular. But to get people to be interested in buying the physical product, I mean, Tool did that this year with their new record. They were able to tap yeah. into something that hasn't been done yeah. before in this, in this generation. And people went out and they bought it. And they were, they, it, was, it was the number one album for a week or I think at least a week, maybe two but it was because of that uniqueness. But isn't that amazing? Like, even that, you know, we live in a world where, like, look, if nothing sticks to Donald Trump, nothing will stick on the latest rock and roll band. But Tool came back after a, more than a decade. This album should be talked about every single day by rock bands. This album should be as big of a Bruce Springsteen album is, considering the fact that every single rock band seemingly was waiting for it. You know, like, it's amazing as a publicist. And this is the stuff that I deal with on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, is how to compete with everything else that's out there. Where you release an album on a Friday, everybody talks about it Friday and Saturday and Sunday, it's done. It's yeah. gone. We're on, we're on the next shiny object. You know, you look at the 80s and 90s for rock albums. I mean, we're still talking about Back in Black. Now, that's, I get it. It's one album in like 54 million albums that have been released since the 70s. But, you know, it just seems like, you know, there, there are certain rock bands where every single um, album in their catalog continues to sell ZZ Top or 
ACDC and hundreds of artists in between then. Um, but it, it, but because of the high turnover, I think of the charts and the way that the methodology is where artists like Drake releases an album with 26 songs on it. And each of those 26 songs make the billboard hot 100 because of the way that the billboard is now calculating songs, not just based on sales, but streams and YouTube views and everything else that kind of comes along with it. So you don't allow Tool's album to stay in the top 10 for a year like it deserves to. Not that I don't think that it's not a great or an amazing album, because it is. But I would think that every single rock band on the free planet would want to own this album, but, but they're not. You know, so therefore, like, nobody's talking about it even a week after it drops off the charts. I find that stuff fascinating to me that, you know, I'm still playing stuff that's 50 years old on a regular basis. And I hope that there's people out there that are listening to Tool's first album or, or, um, you know, the White Stripes as much as they did. I mean, I wouldn't know. I don't talk to anybody. Real quick, I know we've got a, a little bit of time left, but I wanted to ask you, we mentioned it briefly in the first part of the interview about the big tour that was announced with Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Poison, and Joan Jett. Now, I am of the fan that is disappointed in that there's not a new rock band on that bill. You know, we, you know, we, we talk about new rock music, and here's a perfect opportunity for bands to bring out an unknown or an up-and-coming band to put in in front of their audience, and it didn't happen. Why does that occur? Why why didn't that happen? Um, is it the promoter? Is it the bands? Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, it's a little bit of everybody. Um, there are certain tours, not necessarily this one in, in particular, because um, I don't know the inner workings of this tour, but I certainly know a lot about some of the classic rock bands or some of the heritage bands where the opening band or when they go out on tour, sometimes depending on whose booking agent books them, the other band will actually pay to get on to that tour. Um, it all depends on where the ball is and whose court it is and whose team is the one that's putting it together, who's asking who, what kind of a relationship do they have, who's got the new album that's coming out or in Molly Cruz's case, the documentary. Um, so sometimes it's just a matter of playing politics and personal politics on, well, can we help get more money in the band's pocket if we sell the opening slot and if we sell it to another band that's kind of fairly well-known um, or that do we do a 60-40 split? Um, the promoters are are there to make as much money as possible. And the really great ones, there's a couple of them here in Toronto and in Canada who will try to put Canadian up-and-coming artists on every single tour that they can just to give it the local flavor. But most often than not, the headlining band has absolutely no idea who that opening band is, which is a shame because you want to think as an audience member that, oh, this new this band from our, from our city was touched by the hand of the Smashing Pumpkins or the Cult, and they're bringing them on tour. Well, they probably don't even talk to one another. And that's not to say that the, that the Pumpkins or the Cult do or don't. It's just those kind of bands 
they just tend not to hang out or that they've got their own scene or their own media schedule going on and there's just no time to, to, to hang out with those newer bands. So um, it's the promoters, it's the venues, it's those headlining bands. But I agree. I think that this could have been a really great way for somebody like Motley Crue to say, not only are we still relevant with you people that are our age, but we actually have one foot in the modern world and we're going to bring up this brand new band with us. It's a shame that they didn't, but I kind of understood sometimes why they wouldn't. Um, again, it goes back to, so whose fault is it? Is it the band's fault? Or do you stick a brand new band that might be amazing, but nobody will know about them and therefore they're going to be playing to 45 people? Right, and it looks like the, the, the start times are very early, too. So you also want people to get into the stadium, start drinking, start buying merch, and you want them there as early as possible, right? So when you've got... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you've got a 4.30 time... Yeah, because you've, yeah, you've got an 11 o'clock curfew on most of these venues now anyway. The minute that you go over 11 o'clock, it starts to cost you about $10,000 a minute. Yeah, yeah. So that plays into it too. I mean, are they going to want to have a Joan Jet start playing at four thirty-five o'clock, or do they want a new band that people are going to be like, "Well, this new band we never heard of, so we're just going to get there for Poison." So they're going to spend less time in the park, which means they're going to be spending less money. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Real quick, funny story before I let you go here, Eric. Uh, you mentioned the looping yeah. with the pop artist. So I about a year or two ago, I was playing an isolated. Uh, drum track of John Bonham with the song Fool in the Rain. And you can find yeah. it on YouTube, and it's amazing. And my son's listening to it, and he's like, I don't see what the big deal is. All they're doing is looping the, the drums. <laughs> 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 and I said, that didn't exist back in 1977. There was no looping. Yeah. This was all him and, yeah. and playing in, with perfect timing and, and in the perfect pocket and doing it over and over again for a five-minute song. Yeah, and even if they needed to edit something, they had to do it with a razor blade on a magnetic tape. Yeah, yeah. Just the yeah. the perspective awesome. of a 14-year-old awesome. is, is great. You know? so, yeah, I hear you. Well, hey, I, I appreciate you doing this and coming on. Um, I'd love to have you back. There's so much to discuss, and there's so many interesting things that you brought up that have me thinking a little differently now, which is great, and hopefully it'll help my audience. Oh, the pleasure's all mine, yeah. man. It- yeah, no, it was so great to talk to you and a big fan of what you do in the podcast. So um, keep up the great work. And anytime you want to talk, I'll be here. All right, Eric, you have a good day. You too, man. We'll talk soon. All right. Once again, this is Jay okay. Scott, and this is The Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. We will chat again soon. Take care, everybody. <laughs> If you're looking to move out of your parents' place, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive, which is good because your little brother has gotten really territorial. You're blood-related. You'd think it would be fine to share food in the fridge. I mean, who writes their name on every individually wrapped slice of cheese, Tyler? Still, you've got to admire the commitment. So bundle your renter's and car insurance with Progressive and use the savings to help you move out and have all the cheese you want. 
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 